production. Hello, it's Sarah. I wanted to let you know about my three new meditations I have made especially for you. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that meditation has been a big part of my life for a long time, so a lot of care has been taken in making these meditations extremely powerful. I've created a 20-minute manifestation meditation to allow you to bring your dreams into reality. Then I've created two 10-minute meditations, one for the morning to help you start your day vitalized and with a clear mind, then an evening meditation to help you have a calm and restful sleep. You can find these three meditations on my website at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Guru Singh is one of the wisest spiritual voices on meditation, guidance and universal support. He insists on holding a deeper appreciation for how our inner worlds influence our outer worlds. He explores the art of stillness and shares what he and others are learning about the space between thoughts and how our brains take care of our bodies. Seeing the world through his eyes, we understand that there is no such thing as yesterday, only here and now. In this intimate conversation, we discuss the power of purpose and how to find it, meditation, and embracing who we truly are, not a version of us that others want to see. Being satisfied and fulfilled in each moment while knowing we can get even better. Because enlightenment is not a condition, it's a pathway that is constant and continuous. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Guru Singh is an esteemed spiritual teacher, author and speaker. His courses, Kundalini University and 13 Moons, have improved the lives of thousands around the world. In his writing, he explores practical teachings for cultivating inner strength, joy and direction. My hope is that our conversation allows you to identify the blocks you have created in your own life and puts you on the path to freedom and joy. Guru Singh, please let us know a bit about your upbringing and how you became the wonderful guru that you are. As they say, guru is the light that comes out of the darkness. Hmm. Well, you've got that right. Gu actually means total darkness in Sanskrit, and ru means total light. So the guru is the light from the darkness. And that's my name. My name is Guru Singh. It's not a title. So I was, um, I was born in a family that was artistic. My father was a fine artist. My mother was a classical musician. And my ancestry had come from Wales through London to both the United States and India. Because back in the early 20th century, India was part of the British Empire. And my great aunt lived in Calcutta, where Sri Yukteswar had an ashram. And Sri Yukteswar is the guru, the teacher of Paramahansa Yogananda, who wrote Autobiography of a Yogi. And in 1916, my great aunt began studying with Sri Yukteswar in Calcutta, India. And then in 1919, she was sent with Paramahansa Yogananda to Boston and she served him until his death in 1952. And so when I was born in 1945, she was one of the main influences in our household. And so I was born into a vegetarian meditating family of yogis and I was the weirdest person in the school, you know? I was like, when I went to a reunion, Year about 10 or 20 years after I graduated high school, 
people looked at me and I looked like this with a little darker beard, of course. And they went, I knew you were going to end up like this. And I thought, I thought, was it that obvious? And so I was raised through a yogic household to be meditative, to be prayerful. I was a recording artist in the 1960s. I was stationed in San Francisco. I went through the 60s as one of those who didn't do drugs and didn't do alcohol because I had my background in meditation that kept me at that level of conscious awareness that I didn't need anything else to try to assist it. So that's the, that's the thumbnail sketch. Wow. And then, and then, you know, I was married in 1974. My wife and I have two beautiful children. We have three beautiful grandchildren. And so we live a life of incredible spiritual opportunity as well as a fully engaged life in the world itself. That's remarkable. Your upbringing sounds like something that I would have loved. Was it <clears throat> fantastic? And I know, like you mentioned, you would have been quite different to the other kids at school. Was that hard at all? Oh, yeah. Um, and so I tried to mask it. I got good at sports. I got good at music. I got good at acting. You know, I got good at the things that they would judge you by. And I, had, and I got good grades. I figured out how to get good grades really quickly. And so I managed to sort of work with all of the things that are going to be judging you in yeah. life, your peer group, your elders, your family. Of course, my family was very non-judgmental, but I worked with all of those things to try to master them, and that's what I look back on that and I say, well, thank goodness I had to try to mask my way through my childhood. Not that I was being false or phony, but I was trying to be excellent mm. so that I could be accepted. And yes, it was difficult because there were things that I couldn't do just because I knew inside that it wasn't appropriate. Mm. And so that, uh, that stood in the way of a lot of m moments that could have been um, detrimental, I guess, yeah. if you look back on it years later. But they were moments that you thought would be really exciting in the time. Yeah. What were the sort of spiritual teachings that your parents brought you up with? Well, there was a lot of Buddhic teachings, a lot of Vedic teachings, a lot of Christian teachings, mm. a lot of the mystical Christians. My mom was a big, um, a big advocate of the mystical Christians, and. So we had a we had a sort of a a confluence of all different pathways, and that is one of the reasons why I was so attracted to the Sikh faith. Not that that's the only faith that I am. I consider myself to be a Sikh, a Christian, a Jew, a Jain, a Hindu, <laughs> a Buddhist, a Muslim, and on and on and on. I consider myself to be a human, yeah, and all of the other spiritual or religious components are part of my life. That's so interesting because I would consider myself to be the same. I mean, Judaism is what I was brought up with, but at the same time, all the other teachings have played a really big part in my life and I just think they're so profound. And I think yes. as well, like you can take little bits from all of them if what you like about them and just practice them in your everyday life. For me, that works. Yeah, isn't that what Rumi yeah. was always talking about? He was always talking about the little bits of each of each pathway. Absolutely. Coming together to form yours. And it's so fulfilling. I know that people do strictly follow one, but I think there is something in you can have your religion, but then to be open to listening about other different religions or spiritual teachings. It just enriches you so much. And just to hear yeah. stories is such a fabulous thing. 
You know, I look at it a little bit like automobiles. Mm. When you land in a city, if you take an airplane, you have to rent a car. And it's a car that you've never driven before. But the purpose of the car is not that you're familiar with the car or that you've driven it before or that you like it a lot. The purpose of the car is to get you to where you're going. And I look at spiritual paths as that, is that they're a vehicle that get us to where we are to go. And in doing so, we can have our favorites. You know, we can own our favorite back at home and we can participate in others. And when other people give us a ride, they give us a ride in their car. Mm. And so we have to then experience something that they are enjoying and loving. And, you know, there's a saying that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Mm. And so you can take that not just in physical beauty, but the beauty of this vehicle or that vehicle or this religion or that religion or this person or that person. And if you see beauty in all situations, because beauty is in the eye of the beholder, that means that you're experiencing that beauty, you're experiencing that joy, you're giving yourself the opportunities to have those incredibly glorious experiences. Yeah. So that's what I hear you saying, and that's what I feel too. Absolutely. You mentioned that meditation was a big part of your practice and you did it from a young age. Why has that been so important to you? Medically speaking, in today's world, they are recognizing that the human being for the past 120,000 years has really developed the brain in the head. Mm. Most other animals work mostly with the brain in the stomach, which is that search for nourishment. In the human form, they're now understanding, it's called multi-braining. They're now understanding that there is neurology in the stomach, in the gut, not just in the stomach, neurology in the heart area, in the lungs and the heart and the thymus, and of course, as we know, the neurology in the head. And what meditation does, it allows you to use the gut brain, as they call it, to feel more of your environment, to be clairsentient, mm. intuitively sentient. The heart brain, when you meditate, is developed even more and you become more clairaudient. You're able to hear the nuances of a person's voice so that you're not just listening to the words that they're using because those all have very personal definitions, but you're listening to the tones that they're speaking with, the inflections that they're using, and those can say more than the words in themselves. And then you also work with the head brain in meditation because so much of life is chatter. So many things are trying to capture your attention. People are trying to capture your attention. Magazines and newspapers and the internet is trying to capture your attention. If you're driving down a street, the billboards are trying to capture your attention or something on the radio or a podcast is trying to capture your attention. So there's so much information that we're having to process. If through meditation, we're able to come into a multi-brain balance, then all of a sudden, instead of just the third dimension and the fourth dimension and the second dimension, second dimension being right, wrong, good, bad, the analysis of the head brain, Mm -hmm. and the fourth dimension being the time sequence or the beat of your heart, and the third dimension, of course, being you know, the space around you that's going to provide you with that connection and that nourishment. When you connect all of those equally, that's when you suddenly open up because you're very relaxed, you're very composed, and after practice for a few months or years, you learn that you can actually go out into other places, other dimensions, And in those other dimensions, that's where intuition takes Mm. place. And so many times from a small child up until now, I have 
run with my gut feeling, had a sense of my auditory Claire audience, had a vision in that Claire voyance, and I've gone with it, and it's proven to be correct. I did it with my musical career. I did it with my yogic career. I did it with all kinds of businesses that I've started. I did it with my wife. <laughs> my wife and I never dated. <laughs> first, almost one of the first things I asked her was, will you marry me? Oh, <laughs> because I had had a vision and she matched that vision. Wow. And I went, oh my gosh, this is destiny. And she paused for a moment and she thought about it. And she was a meditator and a yogi herself. And she came back and she said, yes, after what I thought was a very long time and she says was only about five or 10 seconds. Because we didn't know each other, we knew of each other. Yeah. And now we've been married for 47 years. So probably the greatest relationship, not probably, the greatest relationship of my life was caused by meditation and intuition and knowing. Yeah, knowing. I believe when I pray, I'm talking to God and when I meditate, Mm. God's talking to me. How beautiful. It's the... That is so beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's that quietness during meditation that is just so hard to find in our day-to-day life. We've all got busy lives and kids or work, family, all that kind of stuff. And those moments when we're able to sit in silence, it's just, not only is it obviously good for your brain and everything it does as far as like help with all the crazy thoughts that we have and it is just such a peaceful place where you're able to just go into that space of nothingness. And obviously there's heaps of different types of meditations, but I've just, for me, it has been one of the game changers of my life for me to not only be more spiritual, but also just to be a better person in my eyes open life as well. I'm glad that you mentioned sitting in the quietness, in the silence, because that's where most people find meditation to be challenging. And so my advice to those who aren't able to find that silence or that quietness is live in the noise, follow the noise, explore the noise, explore the chatter, because when you pay attention to something, it won't go on forever. I'm a parent and a grandparent, you're a parent, and we know from raising children that when you don't listen to a child, that child is going to bug you. If they have something that they want to say to you and they have that feeling that it's important, then they're going to bug you and they're going to bug you until you listen. So the chatter in our minds, the chatter in our brains is very much like the children in our lives. Mm. And if we can actually sit down and not say, okay, now I'm just going to sit down and be really silent. And we sit down and we stop the active process of developing thoughts. And we start to listen to the passive process Mm. of thoughts echoing and developing and running their course. And we pay attention to them like a really good teacher would in a classroom. We pay attention to each of the thought forms as if they're one of our children, one of our students. And we listen to them and then they don't have to say, they they won't continue to speak. They'll go silent. And the more of those thought forms that begin to go silent, all of a sudden you end up in a quiet time. And that's, sometimes I use mantra, sometimes I use background music, Sometimes I use, sometimes I just say, I am going to meditate while I'm taking a walk Mm. or while I'm taking a hike. You could meditate while you are swimming. 
You could meditate while you are doing so many different things. And the other thing that is very important in meditation, and mindfully so, is to be aware that you are breathing. Mm. And begin to breathe intentionally. And so if you just inhale, feel it in your nose, feel it in your throat, feel it in your chest, feel it in your gut, because if you're breathing properly, when you inhale, the belly goes out and the chest drops down. When you exhale, the belly goes in and the lungs empty out. And so... So many different forms of meditation. It's a little bit like food, you know? Yeah. You can, you can have any kind of food and you can flavor it yourself and exactly. make it the way you want to make it. It's so true. And it's, it, it's very interesting that you talk about all of the insights that you had during meditation that were life-changing for you. And I feel like I had the same. And it goes on to mm. what I want to discuss a bit about purpose, which is in my meditation, I had the idea of this podcast I've, I'm doing now, which has been life-changing, not only for myself, but for a lot of my audience as well. I had the idea of getting this prolific spiritual teacher on in my early days of starting the podcast, which also very much changed the podcast in a great way. There are just so many insights that have come to me during meditation about my life's purpose that I'm unsure of if I would have found that when I was in the noise of the world and my day-to-day way of mm. being. And I want to discuss with you, Guru Singh, why purpose is an important part of our life and our journey on this earth. Purpose is like a place to go. When you get in your car, if you don't have any place to go, You're just driving around. And that's okay. However, at some point in time, you will want to go someplace. Mm -hmm. Purpose is like a map and a place to go. A place to go with a map. And one of the things that I find to be very, very true almost universally, is that if you decide on a purpose, it's igniting a couple of things inside of you. Self-value, faith, and trust. Once those are ignited, that purpose may change. But when it changes, just as when you've changed in your career and I've changed in my career, When it does change, you have the same faith and the same trust that you can make that change. You can switch. There's a saying that you can't turn a stalled car, a a car that's not moving. You can't turn it around. And so even though you may not know what your purpose is, as long as you start moving towards a purposeful nature, Mm. you will start receiving those indicators. And they may be in that noisy brain that starts to get a little more quiet as you try to meditate from time to time. I would say start out meditating two to three to four to five minutes a day, just following your breath and start journaling while you're meditating or after you're meditating and journal on purpose and see if you can't find a laundry list or a grocery list of things that you think are connected to your purpose and then they will all begin to merge together and form a primary one and a secondary one. And that's when you can start exploring those. It may not end up being the one that you're going to have forever. But as I said before, your vehicle is now moving with faith and trust. And you begin to understand that you can change if you need to. How 
do you think people know when they've found their purpose? Like, I mean, for me, I feel like it was obvious. It was a feeling where I, hmm. I was telling you before we started this podcast that I used to produce a lot of other amazing podcasts and that could have been my career and I would have been very happy with that because I was dealing with great people working on great content but then I found a life of greatness and I developed that and that feeling to me was something that I'd never felt before that it Mm. just blew me away the love that I have for this podcast and the community I've built is it that simple for most people do most people get that wow this is this is where I feel almost like at home At home is a good sensation. I would say that you would either follow the feeling, which you've just described very eloquently, or you would follow the words. They can be spoken or written, that you're journaling about your purpose. Or you can follow the vision that you have if you see something that you like and you say, I'd like to do something like that. Mm. What it requires is an openness, an openness to learn from others, an openness to admire others, even an openness to be a bit envious of others. You know, envy and jealousy, if used in microscopic amounts, are actually very stimulating. Yes, agree. When you're jealous of somebody and you don't let it overwhelm you, it's a bit like salt in food. If you put just a little bit of salt, the flavor comes out. If you put a lot of salt, it ruins it. It's just salty. And the same thing is true with all of these various emotions. And when you're striving to find your purpose in life, you're going to be experiencing your emotional body, your emotional self in a profound way because you're right there in the intensity of your existence. And not only are you going to be experiencing the joys of finding things that work for you, but you're also going to be experiencing significant emotions on the darker side of the emotional spectrum, such as doubt and fear. I mean, when you step out into a world that feels like home to you, but it's brand new to everybody else, you're filled with a sensation of... This this is scary. I can remember I wanted my whole life to be a performing artist. And I started piano at the age of five and violin at the age of seven and guitar at the age of 10 or 11. And when I landed a recording contract with a major record company and I started being put out on stages in front of thousands of people in the audience... I was petrified. (laughs) My glorious dream that I had just, oh, admired and admired for so long was coming true. And it was scaring the bejeebers out of me. And so consequently, you have to be able to navigate Mm. all sides of your emotional being when you are in pursuit of your true purpose. Mm. Because, and by the way, this is one of the reasons why so many people don't want to go for purpose. They just want to go for security or yeah. safety, financial security or, or you know, safety in, 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 their, in their sensation because it becomes too overwhelming. And so what I would like to say to those people that are listening, start slowly. The only way that you can get out of the need for security and safety and find true safety and true security is by going very, very slowly so that the subconscious does not make a radical correction when you get outside of your familiar zone. Mm. Because the subconscious tries to keep you in a familiar zone. So one of the things about safety and security is that you remain somewhat cloistered, somewhat small, in order to feel familiar. That feels safe. When you're growing and when you're expanding and when you're doing your dream, 
that's very unsafe. Mm. And so you want to move slowly. You want to take steps. You want to make steps. It's a little bit like the Dutch, you know, claiming the lands for their tulip fields. You know, they built the dikes out in the water, then they pumped the water out from behind the dikes, then they desalinated the soil, and they brought in more topsoil, and now they had a field. And then they would put another dike out beyond that, pump out the water. That's kind of like the growth from being small and needing security to being able to live your life on purpose in a purpose-filled sensation that is extremely fulfilling but sometimes feels a bit dangerous. Mm. That's so wonderful. I wonder, you mentioned doubt before, which is something that all of us face. Mm. How do we move past doubt and not let it put us almost like in its shackles? I'll tell you how I do it. It's not the only way, but it certainly worked for me. I make a friend out of doubt. Mm. And I walk, I let it walk beside me. And when it tells me in whatever way it's going to tell me, I doubt if you're going to be, no, I doubt if that's going to happen, I doubt if that, I say to it, you're such a good friend. You have really kept me on the right path. Mm. Now, I'm hearing what you're saying. Let me try and do it and let's see how it works out. And then doubt knows that I have heard it and it doesn't keep bugging me. It doesn't keep plaguing me. It stays beside me. And I do the same thing with fear. Yeah. I do the same thing with all of what I call the dark emotions, which I don't consider to be unnecessary or disposable. I always want to keep them around me. I mean, fear, for example, is a wonderful emotion mm. if you use it properly. So true. It's like the guardrail on a road. You know, that guardrail is telling you, if you go past this point, you're in really big danger. And so you respect that fearful guardrail and you hope that it's on the roads that you travel so that you always know where you have to be in your lane. Mm. And so if we, I do what I call, and I learned this in my shamanic days. I wrote a book called Buried Treasures and it's about my uh, experience with an indigenous group of people in way, way, way back in the unexplored areas of, of the Copper Canyons of Mexico. And one of the things that they taught me was that you hold what is called counsel with your emotions and with your insights and with all of those things that in a literal world you would be journaling on, yeah. you would be writing about perhaps. And so I let my fear and my doubt and my rage and my other things, along with my joy and my love and my, my, all of the beautiful things, I let them all sit with me as one of my meditative forms. Mm. And in doing that meditation, I do it pretty consistently at least once a week just to see, just to gauge how am I doing? Is my doubt controlling me or is it just balancing me? Because if it's controlling me, that means that I'm not reaching out far enough. But if it's just balancing me, that it's always coming up. It means that I'm always extending my, my experience. I'm always extending my awareness, but I'm not letting the doubt contract me. Mm. Isaac Newton's third law of motion, for every action there is an equal yeah, cause reaction. Cause effect. Is the law of physics. Yeah. When you are growing when you are becoming more whatever it is that you want to become more of, there is going to be the equal reaction. Mm. So you have to be able to navigate it and work it. It's why airplanes are shaped the way they are because they're flying at five, 600 miles an hour through the air. If they had big square noses, that 
plane would be just pushing so much air, but the dynamics, the aerodynamics is what we have to learn in our life. We have to learn the living dynamics so that our life can sail through time and space without creating a lot of reaction. Mm. It's funny because people talk about spirituality in very different ways. Some people think it's all about talking to the afterlife or there's crystals or there's those very cliche Hollywood ways of looking at it. But for me, it's just being a conscious person. And to your point, talking about Newton's third law, which I have studied a lot about in the sense of the law of cause and effect of what you give Mm. out, you receive. And I think that is a really interesting way to just lead your life as being a good person, knowing that that what you put out will come back to you regardless of if it's good or bad. It's one of those universal laws that once we're conscious of, we can live a more fulfilled life, but also a kinder life, a life that allows us to not hit as many waves as what it might if we weren't conscious about our actions. It's beautiful that you say that you've studied this because this is one of those guiding principles in a soul-based, spirit-based life. When you get to a place of awareness and you begin to see the subtleties that connect us, that connect Mm -hmm. everyone, you actually start to experience what the botanists have found to be true in the old growth forests of the world. And that is that everything in the old growth forest helps everything else. Nothing in the old growth forest competes. Nothing in the old growth forest tries to gain advantage over anything else because it understands Mm -hmm. that what it gives to its neighbors is going to come back to it. And that is one of the most successful, you look at the most successful animals and the most successful plants on the earth, and every one of them lives by exactly what you said, the principles of give and receive. That comes out of the heart brain Mm. because the heart brain pumps blood into the body, receives blood back from the body. What goes around comes around. The lungs, which is part of the heart center, exhale the carbon dioxide into the world. The plants inhale carbon dioxide, give off oxygen. The lungs inhale oxygen back into the body. So there are these cycles of what's called serving and deserving. Deserving, if you deserve something, it means that you've served something. These words come from, etymologically, they come from with origins in which they were all connected together. And so giving and receiving is one of the principles that you say you live Mm -hmm. by, and it's one of the laws of success. In that, what we are able to give out into the world will dictate what we are able to Mm -hmm. receive back from the world. And as Newton's third law of motion and so many other physicists have talked about, the deeper you go into the construction of the material world, right, which is our bodies and within our bodies, etc., you end up finding out that this is not only a way of achieving things in the outer life, Mm. but this is also a way of achieving good health in the inner life. That the thoughts that you think, if you're a meditator and you begin to orchestrate harmonic thoughts, I use musical terms there, that you're able to orchestrate harmonic thoughts, the cells in your body become harmonious. They don't Mm -hmm. fight each other. Your 
your autoimmune system doesn't fight your body, your body doesn't fight your autoimmune system. And when there are invaders, whether it's bacteria or virus, you're strong to support yourself. It's really, really the, the idea yeah. of where we've come to here in this conversation of giving and receiving is huge in today's world yeah. because in today's world there is so much unconsciousness, mm -hmm. the unconsciousness of wars, the unconsciousness of violence, the unconsciousness of cruelty, the unconsciousness of bigotry, mm. the unconsciousness of, of, of sexism and of racism and of all of these events that are very hierarchical, not at all equal, and not at all understanding that what goes around comes around. That's why it's so important to be in communication mm within your life in the way that you just described. That's beautiful it's, and, it, and so true. I have to tell you this story that just came to me when you were speaking about that, about how you were fulfilled from doing actions of good as well. Last week, I was just doing some errands and I'd parked my car and I looked to the side and I saw a young, a boy that, I don't know, maybe he was a teenager, who was homeless and he was sitting outside a shop. And so I thought to myself, I'm going, I was going into a deli and I was, I'll buy him something and I'll give it to him. So anyway, I bought him a little cake and I also had some money. So I went up to him and I gave it to him. He was very grateful. And then I got in my car to drive away and I looked at him and he was eating the cake and he gave me the biggest smile and I, I honestly, it just brought tears to my eyes. And when I came home and meditated that day, I meditated on his smile. And the mm. fact that it fulfilled, it probably fulfilled me yeah. more than it fulfilled him. It was so beautiful to receive that from him, that smile. I'll never forget it. It stayed in my mind and mm. it just, it has enriched my life so much. Well, here you are talking about a homeless boy somewhere in Australia. And this homeless boy is now being broadcast out yeah. to the world. So his smile, which was so genuine and authentic, is now going out and touching all of the people that are listening to your podcast. Mm. Can you imagine in the subtle ways what benefits that is going to give him in return. That's so true. It's the law. It's not like, it's not a philosophy. Cause yeah. and effect is a law. It is, it is, <laughs> I mean, you can't say it any more dramatically than that, that it's not something that I hope it works or maybe it works. No, it works because it is the law. Just like if you mix blue paint with yellow paint, mm. it is the law that you're going to get green paint. It's not like maybe. And so that homeless boy, because he gave you that incredible benefit, is going to be receiving benefit in some ways over some days, weeks, months, years. I wanted to talk to you, Guru Singh, about the fact that a lot of us don't see things as they are. And I know that you teach about this, how we have illusions that are on top of everything. How do we get to a stage where we can see things without the illusions that our minds place on them? By exploring the illusions until the illusions reveal what they are made up of, let's go back to the metaphor that I just used. Within that <clears throat> mixture of 
yellow paint and blue paint creating green paint. The green color and the yellow color and the blue color are all optics. Mm. They're light reflecting particles called pigment. But if you were to go down inside that paint, that green paint, you would find the original blue particles and you would find the original yellow particles when combined, create the illusion of green. That's why they call some colors primary colors. Yeah. Well, when you go down inside the illusion of your life, you're going to get to the next level, which will be more primary. Still probably illusions, but they're more base-level illusions. And then you go down inside of that and you find the next level. And then you go down inside of that and you find the next level. <clears throat> That's an incredible question because what it does is opens up the conversation around judgment. When you see someone that is doing something very, very cruel or you see someone that is doing something very, very wonderful. Both of those activities are caused by something previous. So if you were to go down inside the cruelty or you would go down inside the beauty, you would find, okay, what caused that? Then what caused that? And then what caused that? And when you go back far enough, and this is a meditative practice, when you go back far enough, you find out that the origin of all things are almost identical, whether the person was doing something very cruel or very beautiful. That the original cause of everything that was coming through was the same. And that is that the cause being the same then was just influenced by the experiences and the decisions in those experiences that each of those persons had. And as they got closer and closer to this moment in which they acted quite differently, it was a combination of the absolute similar origin developed through the various experiences of life. And in that way, you can understand that there's no such thing as bad people. Yeah. There are just people doing bad things. And that the people that are doing good things are not better than the people that are doing bad things. They've just had both chronologically a different experience in life and therefore they're doing things the way they are and we are also epigenetically mm. influenced by what medical science is now understanding at least 14 generations of ancestors are influencing our physical body which influences the hormones and peptides and mm. lipids and proteins that are secreted into our bloodstream. And that creates our recipe for our emotions. So our physical body is created by our genealogy, our ancestry. Our physical body then, then produces our emotions, our feelings, and our emotions and our feelings then begin to control and dictate what we think. And so all of this, if you're a meditator, you can begin to unravel mm. so that you can get down into the source code. And there's a common word that's being used right now in, in spiritual realms. You can hack your existence <laughs> like a computer hacker. And you can change your programming. Yeah. You can change your programming so that you don't do this, but you do that. 
And that is a really important component. Now, not only can we change our own programming, but we can teach others how they can change their programming. I mean, you and that exchange with that homeless boy, that changed your programming and that also changed his programming. Absolutely. And so the way in which we approach each other is really vital. Mm. And some people in the world are still operating in what I would call the old system of aggression and force. But the new system, because there's nearly 8 billion of us on this planet, the new system is not about aggression and force and centralized command. The new system has to be how we work with the law of cause and effect. Mm. And we begin to comprehend and understand that we're all in this together. Do you believe, and it sounds like you probably do, that everyone is born good and the environment is what shapes who we become? Or our our interpretation of the environment? Everyone is born good at the soul level. The environment is definitely going to control it. And also the genealogy, the body in which you are born into is going to control it also. For example, they learned after the Second World War that there were certain traits that the survivors of the death camps had and that their second generation had particular traits. And so some of the survivors that moved to Australia, let's just use kind of a metaphor here, their offspring were exhibiting some of the same features as those that moved to England or those that moved to Canada. And so the scientists started to study, and this is what developed the science of what's known now as epigenetics, Mm. that our emotions are imprinted into our DNA. If we have traumatic experiences, they're imprinted into the DNA. If we have extremely phenomenal, glorious experiences, it's imprinted into the DNA. And that gets passed on through the generations. Mm. So we aren't all born equal, but at a soul level we are. Mm. And so if we can begin to work with each other at a soul level and see through the genetic programming and what you called the experiential programming, then we can slowly help each other to identify themselves with that soul's version of that incredible wonder Mm. as opposed to what's in the genealogy and also what's in the chronology the chronological experience. That's what true teaching and true growing is going to need as part of the curriculum. I would love to be able to give this to the public schools all over the world, to be able to build that kind of a curriculum where a child can begin to understand its genealogical past and what does it have to do. Mm. It's so easy. If you're swimming in a river, say you know that you have to swim in a certain way to get across because the water is flowing like this. If you're swimming in the ocean and there's a tide and there's a current, you have to swim in a certain way to get to where you want to go. And so these rivers and tides and currents that are in our genealogy, we have to be able to take those into consideration so that if we want to get to where we're going... We may not have to do it or we may not need to do it in the same way that somebody else does it. But if there's some way that we can meditate and get down inside of ourselves and begin to understand what are the currents, what are the winds, what are the rivers that are flowing through our body, that are flowing through our emotions, and then we compensate for those as we navigate our life, That's what meditative living is all about. That's beautiful. Guru Singh, what is the best advice that you have ever been given? 
be you. You be you. Mm. A person said that to me and I thought, that's, that's really rhymy. <laughs> <laughs> you be you. And I thought, well, who, who else could I be? <laughs> and in my book, Buried Treasures, and also we teach it in Kundalini University, and we also teach it on the platform 13 Moons, how to be your most authentic self. And so I've used that you be you, which was a statement in a moment that some advisor to me, some mentor to me when I was very, I was in my early 20s. You be you. Stop being an imposter. Yes. Stop being a wannabe. Be you. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, I've started to be more and more and more and more and more myself. And when you really start being yourself, that's when you start to get in trouble. Because everybody is accustomed to you being a little bit like them. And that's how they can relate to you and that's how they can accept you. And so when you start being expressly yourself, you have to apologize and you have to forgive. You have to apologize for your actions. I'm sorry, but I just have to be me. And then you have to forgive people for not being able to accept the fact that you are who you are. I wrote a song, I am who I am, that is that. And I recorded it with, you know, well, let me, I'll just say it. I recorded it with Seal, who's a very close friend of mine, uh, and and some other musicians that are incredible, um, Carrie Ann Moss and others. And I'm not dropping names, I'm just trying to tell you what... I'm just trying to tell you all what, what we did. And we recorded this, I am who I am, that is that. And it was all based on that, back to your question, what was the most profound advice that I was ever given? And that was, be yourself. As ridiculous as you might be, yeah. be yourself. And I think that's such wise advice. And after you go through that phase of people working out who the real you is, when, once you are yourself... I think it's also very attractive because you're not being a chameleon, you're being Mm. you. And there's a real power that comes with that, even Mm -hmm. though you don't mean it (laughs) to have that because people look at you and think, wow, she's just being herself or he's just being himself. And that's, I I want a piece of that as well. So I, I think that's incredible. You know, you've just in your own way, recited a, a definition of mastery that I, I read one of my times when I was in India. Uh, my wife and I have spent a great deal of time mm. in India. And one time when I was in India, I was reading in this book, and it said, a master, whether it's a man or a woman, is the person who is the same person, whether they have won the lottery or they're getting a parking citation, a parking ticket, mm. that their response is exactly the same because they're always themselves. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. I got a parking ticket. Wow. I won the lottery. <laughs> just, it's just all the same. Yeah. I love that. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? The lesson that is taking me, has taken me, is taking me, because I haven't fulfilled it yet. The longest to learn is to work through the epigenetics that have come through my ancestry. Because we all have, you know, those generations that have contributed to our physiology our physical body. And because physiology then produces the emotions and the feelings, and then that produces the thoughts, that our ancestry is still speaking through us. It's still echoing through us. And so there are certain things that have happened, that did happen back in my distant past that can still reach in through my day-to-day experience and cause me to have 
reactions that are completely unconscious. In other words, they're like knee-jerk reactions. And I'm working every single day, week, month, and year to help to resolve those. We all have those. And we all have to realize that when we can resolve those, when we can dissolve those and their influence, we can reach the stars. Mm. We can be the phenomenon that we are all meant to be. What's your favorite prayer or mantra or saying? Oh, that came back right away. My mother raised me and my sister with a prayer of the Buddha. Yeah. And translated into English, it is, and she would recite this to my sister and I every single day. The places you are to go, you shall go. The people you are to meet, you shall meet. The things you are to say shall form on your lips as you speak. And that which you are to achieve is already done. Ah, beautiful. And that, by the way, relates back to what you said, what goes around, comes around, Mm. the, the, the law of cause and effect. Because in the physics of infinity, time and space are one moment and one point. There can be no direction. There can be no segmentation. That's what the physics of infinity, known by Tesla and Einstein and all the great scientists, Mm -hmm. have all discovered. That everything is everywhere, always. And that means that what you are to achieve is already done. You just have to walk through the time and space to get to it. That's beautiful and very true. And if you have the faith and trust Mm. to keep on walking through the time and space, you will get to it more quickly than if you take detours of doubt without reconciling your doubts. So don't, don't think that you can't have doubt. No, you can have doubt. But you need to sit with the doubt and reconcile the doubt, and then you can move forward with the doubt, helping to guide your way. Beautiful. What's the most mystical experience that you have ever had? I died when I was 20 years old in the University of Washington Hospital because I had appendix rupture and peritonitis set in and I was dead without a breath or heartbeat for a minute and 45 seconds. And in that moment, I went out into the netherworld and I met some people that I would meet on earth several years later back in the way out back of Mexico's Copper Canyons. And that is how the book Buried Treasure starts, is with that death experience. Wow. What did they say to you when you met them? They said that I was being an imposter, and you be you. Mm. <laughs> So you, you, just, you just found out who yeah, told me wow. that which you said, what is the most profound <laughs> advice? And that's changed yeah. your life. Yeah, it changed my life. It, it, uh, I mean, because, you know, they say the dominant fear in everyone's life is the fear of death. So when you've already done it, you, you kind of don't have to be afraid of that. But the only thing I was then concerned about was the fact that I would then die again before I had fulfilled my purpose. And so that meant that I had to live on purpose every day, which of course I haven't done perfectly. I'm not trying to claim this perfection here. Um, But that does drive my life. I have to be able to live on purpose and I have to be able to live in that in that incredible state of purpose-driven life each day because obviously we never know when that final mm. day is going to be. 
Beautiful. Guru Singh, what is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness to me is being in a state of satisfaction in every moment while still being propelled or driven in a non-vehement way, more of a gentle drive to continue to improve. Mm -hmm. Being satisfied and fulfilled in each moment while knowing we can get even better. Because enlightenment is not a condition, it's a pathway mm. that is constant and continuous. Yeah. Guru Singh, I have enjoyed this conversation immensely today. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. I couldn't have enjoyed my afternoon and your morning more. It's so good to meet you and your purpose and let's do it again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.